What is up? Joe Satriani is back on the show today. He's got an incredible new album. It's called What Happens Next, which most people can't hear, but you're cooler than most people because you listen to this podcast and you get to hear it in advance of its January 12th release because your friends at Diderio made it possible. Yes, that's right. Diderio strings and accessories. I've been using these things my whole life. Joe's been using them for as long as he can remember as well. Joe Satriani uses their EXL 110 sets, nickel wrapped. He, of course, also has signature guitar picks, extra heavy celluloid from D'Addario with cool Joe Satriani artwork on it. Yeah, he's quite the artist. You probably have seen his amazing straps with the cool faces that he draws and paints. They really translate well to guitar straps. D'Addario also sells Joe Satriani Chrome Dome picks. These are the chrome picks, the metal picks that he uses to get his crazy not-of-this-earth sounds, as he likes to call them, you know, little exotic microtonal taps and weird DJ scratches and train noises. And also, they have a new tuner that's great, a mini pedal format, really wonderful killer capos. This is all at daddario.com. That's D-A-D-D-A-R-I-O.com. Satriani also uses their... DIY solderless instrument cable kits for his touring rigs. He and his techs wire up everything, making the cables themselves using these uh, D'Addario solderless cable kits. You just chop the cable the length you want, screw on the jack, boom, you have a new cable in seconds. So please head over to D'Addario.com and check in with your friends there. Hey everybody, welcome to No Guitar Is Safe Podcast, episode 62, the show where I plug in with great guitar players at Trade Licks, talk shop, and reveal inspirations and motivations. We go deep. Take, for example, Joe Satriani's brand new record, What Happens Next. Sure, man, we talk about the licks, we jam on some of the tunes, we listen to the tracks. Again, this thing doesn't come out till January 12th, but you get to hear them here first. But also, we end up finally figuring out what motivated Joe to go in this direction, and and how did he come up with that simple three-word title, What Happens Next? What inspired that? Cool interview and jam session. I must say, I love hanging out with Joe. He is truly one of the most musical guitar players I've ever met. And this album, as with all of his albums, every time he comes out with a new album, it reinvigorates my faith in the guitar album as an artistic form. We all know there's some guitar albums out there, yeah, cool techniques, this and that, amazing parts, but do they hold together as songs? Joe's stuff, man, it's always a killer song. I love that. This is one of the more attention-getting, kind of flashy intros of the album. And you might have heard this one because it's already been released. It's called Thunder High on the Mountain. There is also another song that's been released called Energy. A 
we're going to go deep on some other tracks as well. My name is Jude Gold, and it's only fitting that Joe Satriani would be the first guest to return, our first repeat offender, folks, because he helped launch this podcast by agreeing way back when, two and a half years ago, to be the first guest ever. Now, on that episode, we didn't play as much guitar. We just got into this great discussion. We played some guitar. But he told us his whole life story and musical trajectory and how he developed his sound. Just amazing. So if you ever want to go back, if you, if you missed that, you can always go back. It's waiting there for you for free. Episode one. Here we are, episode 62, and we're just going so deep on Joe's latest what ups. We're going to hang out at his house and play his cool signature Ibanez guitars in that hot rod orange paint. I love Joe's personal guitars too because they have these cool vibrato arms on there that are hollow. They're made of metal, I guess, but they're they're lightweight. They feel almost like the hull of like a Bic pen. They're so lightweight that they reduce the flutter. Pretty clever thing that Joe came up with. He will be plugged into one of his Marshall heads just at quiet practicing volume. I'm plugged into the Roland Cube and these guitars that we're playing are, are brand new from Ibanez and Joe's still setting him up. I love that about him. He takes like a month or two to get his guitar set up with the world famous guitar tech from San Francisco, Gary Brower. Guitar tech to the stars, folks. What a wonderful shop Gary has, by the way. Real Guitars in San Francisco is the front of the store and his shop is in the back part. He's got some great techs working for him. He handles so many people in the Bay Area and beyond and he's got a Plex machine and everything. And he says that Joe is just fanatical about the frets. Well, that's the thing about Joe is he's fanatical about every aspect of his music. And that's why it always just sounds so good. So yeah, we're going to talk shop on his new record, how he came up with it, recorded it down in LA, the basic tracks with Chad Smith, Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer. You know him. You might know him from Joe's other band, Chicken Foot with one Sam Hagar on lead vocals. And a phenomenal bass player, Glenn Hughes, is on Satch's new record as well. What an amazing trio those guys are. And for the tour coming up, got the great Brian Beller on bass, Joe Travers on drums. Love these cats. They're friends of mine. And of course, Mike Keneally will be there on guitar and keyboards. Joe's secret weapon. Thanks again to Diderio.com for sponsoring this episode. And of course, to Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player has been so supportive of this podcast from the beginning. So I don't know about you, but I'm ready to fire up the Jolly Guitar Copter and head up to San Francisco and head over to Joe Satriani's home studio and get this cool guitar hang started. Thanks for listening. Let's go. It's a track on the on the new record that has a very Hendrix beginning. I love the tone on that track on the album too. What was that? For? That was uh, like a, one of the orange guitars, or no, I think it was that one there, forty number five or forty-seven, the ART. Um, it was into a uh, a Metzabarba M Zero amp, um, and that particular one was a prototype, so it had a bit of a upper mid-range peak, and but with the neck pickup, it was nice because it got rid of the, some of the boominess and it kind of help that neck pickup kind of speak a bit. Mm-hmm. 
wasn't supposed to be there because the, it's really funny, the original idea for the song was this, you know, this sort of Van Halen-ish thing, right? So. And that went through the whole song, right? And, and I was just writing it like that, thinking, oh, great, you know. It's just like what most guitar players do. They imagine they're some hero, right? right. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, I can't do that, right? That's like Eddie's thing, right? So, but I kept thinking, well, it's really busy too, so how do I put a melody if there's all this stuff going on, right? And um, so when I came down here and I thought, okay, I have to get busy with it, I was thinking, all right, well, play it on piano first and then put it play it on organ and then go to the orchestra patches and then I you know pizzicato harp all these different things and I started thinking okay this, this works a little bit better uh, and it, the chorus section was also busy so again very busy with delays and distortion and stuff like that Fun to play, you know, when you got yeah. the right sound. But like, w when you're the listener, you go like, "What's all that crap going on there?" So, um, once I cleared that out and I started singing, what I imagined a really cool melody would be, then my perspective on the the song really changed, and I realized, okay, I have to figure out who can play those arpeggios that that still make it evocative but somewhat demure, so that there's an electric space for the electric guitar, right? And should the electric guitar be thick or should it be more like, you know, like Albert King style? So I kind of went, I tried to go in between, you know, like the big, thick kind of a distorted sound I'd used before on some ballads and then some, a bluesier kind of a thing. But that also had a, you know, I didn't know what the band was going to do with it, right? So right before I left for LA, I thought, what if this doesn't work? What if, you know, Chad and Glenn are like, pizzicato strings like i'm not playing on that thing you know and um i'd already got some pushback from from eric uh my my editor who that was the first thing he said is you got to get rid of those strings you know he's for some reason he just that was a bad week for pizzicato for him right <laughs> so um i just thought okay what if the what if they weren't there what what would be the complete opposite way of playing the exact same chords so then I, that's when I came up with that, you know, for the G, C, wow. the, and I thought, well, okay, that's like very little wingish, but I thought, well, maybe they go together. So I recorded it really quickly, one pass, beginning and the end, with the pizzicato strings really loud. So they were together. So I kept thinking, I've, I've got to weave. But the process of like, bring it down to LA and, you know, you play it in the room and everybody goes, oh, that guitar part's really great, you know. And the, and the other guy going, you got to get rid of them strings, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, so I said, wait, just, you know, give it some time, guys, you know. So we tracked it and we went back to Sam's and we did the melodies and the solos and everything. We finally got to that moment of truth and Mike Fraser was finally like, you got to get rid of those strings. <laughs> like, <laughs> you don't need that because we got the yeah. tone. And I think that's what it was. It was just the, the JS guitar into the M0, which I didn't think would be the amp. I just thought it would be a, 
you know, like one yeah. of these here, one of these, uh, you know, twin amps or something. But it wasn't. It was a t- thoroughly modern amp that just saved the day, you know, through a 4x12 cabinet. Well, you're the king of getting a Hendrixy fluty sound or articulate <laughs> sound with a ton of gain. That's what I've always noticed. It's interesting. You know, what What I notice is that when I try to imitate, you know, the way that, that Hendrix worked is that you, ha- you realize that he had, he got that sound not very often, but at the right time, right? And so if, if, like you and I just said, okay, let's just pull out all of his tracks and say this was the sound, you, you realize that your memory of what he achieved is slightly different from the actual historical record. You know, that right. each album was radically, you know, between Are You Experienced and Axis, the guitar sounds were radically different. And it makes you go, oh, wait a minute now, was I thinking the fourth position? I don't think he used one. I think he just used one... Th- you know, one, two, or one, three, and five, right? Uh, uh, so, and then was he playing in a Telecaster on that song? Was he, you know, because I heard that he, he was picking up Noel Redding's Telly for quite right, a few right. songs, like When Cries Mary. And so nobody knows. It Was he playing through a, you know, a, a dual showman or a twin reverb? We don't, these things are kind of lost, right? I know. But he inspired everybody to play like him. And then we've been refining it over the years, you know what I mean? But if you take a, a 69 maple cap Strat and you put it into three Marshall full stacks and you put on the neck pickup, oh my God, that's like, that's not what <laughs> we imagine right. he was working with, but that's what he was working with. So how did he do that? I, you know, I've seen him you know, run those volumes really low and uh, because he's up really loud and he's you know, picking over the upper part of the fretboard, and he's just really working the strings and and his hands and everything. And do you need to use a medium pick like he did? I don't know. You know, I know his his string gauge was different. He played lighter. You know, yeah. we've gone the other way. We go to this you know light top, heavy bottom. But he was the other way. He had a lighter bottom set of strings. So I really appreciate how you respect Hendrix and like it's kind of like a rite of passage, like in the electric guitar like to really figure out something to get something out of what he did like (laughs) even on cherry blossoms like i love the beginning of that solo i think it's like before the crazy whammy part and you're like oh yeah you bend in the string and then you take with a whammy pedal it's almost as if like jimmy had a whammy pedal in 2017 (laughs) if i'm hearing it correctly yeah solo is so weird um well first of all you know it when we tracked it it was uh right it's a it's in a drop d tuning so uh, this is what i think i asked glenn to play because i said i think i'm i might go you know it might be phrygian dominant but i said it just might be phrygian i don't know yet and and the, my problem with that section was that when i first played it and I started shredding on top of it. I really hated myself. It was it was just like hearing myself shred like 1989. I was just like, oh, that really sucks. You got a beautiful song, and then all of a sudden, a typical guitar player shows up and goes, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
like look at me it's like uh, like they know it's okay they know you can play right so then i i just kept thinking like something will happen but i'm just going to wait to see if we can pull the song off because it's so damn dynamic and i just didn't know if a band could play a song like that and it could get from the softest part all the way to the craziest part so but once we're in the studio and i hear the drums and the bass and we've added the, the clean guitar arpeggios and and again there's harp and pizzicato and there's there's the atmosphere and everybody's loving you know the the texture of the thing uh, then I realize I I think I can get pretty free here when this comes and so I had this guy here right the tone bender it's yeah. not an original one but it's 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 by one of the companies that has now been served papers whatever. <laughs> oh no uh, and um, I just loved it because it's just, it's just, every time you hit the strings, something happens. It sounds like it's blowing up and it's different. And, but there's clarity to it. So I had the whammy pedal and, and I had the tone bender plugged in. And then I thought, well, I have this idea that after I do these, these chords, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. So I start with the, you know. one take for some reason I went and then I went back to and and then after that it was just noise so I, I just picked up the whammy pedal and I hit the strings and and uh, I know there's a film of this but I, I haven't seen it yet but I, I remember the guys putting the cameras around because I just thought it was so funny so I'd like hit a D string I'd pick up the pedal I'd be turning the knob to access different uh, uh, octave sweeps, and then I'd be using my other hand to to activate the pedal, and then um, and then I'd cradle it like up here in my lap, and then I'd go and I'd and then I'd go back to you know, but it was sort of like hitting the guitar, touching the pedal, playing traditionally, and then going awesome. back and forth. You're gonna do that on stage with the come out of this <laughs> drum throne up front, put that on your knee? No, I don't think so. I think I've been trying to figure out ways to. Gotta have have your road. Have Keneally do it. <laughs> have Keneally come out and just get down there and tweak your. <laughs> yes, I know. While you're doing that, solo. or every night have somebody from the audience come out and just do that. But it uh, unfortunately um, that could be part of your VIP package. You get to come up <laughs> top prize, biggest ticket. Get it's to sweep a the pedal, boy. That would it, boy. You know that that position is so loud. I mean, because once you kneel down, you're you're basically <laughs> getting the four by twelves right in your face. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that we did a couple of tracks of it because it was hit and miss. Sometimes it was a disaster. And, uh, yeah, there was a fine line between the, the home run and it just, just bloop, you know, <laughs> just not, not working. I love that solo, man. You're pushing it out into the, into the cosmos and really warping time and space. with that. <laughs> I, I was worried about that, to tell you the truth, because I remember thinking, that's great, never did that before, which is always good, always a good reason to, to leave it you know if it's new and uh but i i I actually worry that you know well it's am i actually playing the guitar like what what am i actually doing there you know it's it's like nigel tufnell when he reaches over with his foot and he strums the violin on (laughs) (laughs) whatever he's doing uh you know i was just thinking but when i listen to the song as not as a guitarist and not as the guitarist playing it and i just listen to it I know that if I was a normal person and that came on, that I'd go, "Wow, like that yeah. fits with the rest of the song because it's a some sort of emotional 
explosion, right? And and if I'm not a guitar player, how why would I care if it's difficult or not, or if it shows technique or not? I wouldn't, right? So important for us to remember stuff like that that you know we can be very picky about it like and say hey jude you didn't use your fourth finger you know and and but why would a normal person even care (laughs) oh well i mean speaking of appealing to the normal person quote unquote (laughs) yeah i really feel like i mean am i crazy and i'm not absolutely familiar with all 16 of your records in detail but are you getting simpler and simpler like this morning, I mean, first of all, I say that with the most reverence and like respect for like bands like The Ventures. People might not know them. They had number one hits, number yeah. top ten hits with just guitar, and you could play it. Yeah. And like this morning, I think I learned three of your songs off Great. this album <laughs> That's good. that you can play. And of course, you still take it out to the cosmos like you always have. But you, but these are licks that can be played. Yes, I'm so into that. I'm so it's so. I think it's so satisfying yeah. when you can play something easily, but it's so big. It's for some reason it just it creates a world within itself. I mean, that's what yeah. all the best riffs are like. You know, it's just like I mean, I don't know, Purple Haze. That's not difficult, but as soon as you hear it, it's a world. It's the world of Jimi Hendrix. Nobody was there before him. And he created it, and, and there you go. You know, I remember when I first heard that song, and my favorite part, I love the intro, but I just remember thinking how mean the G sounded. Purple Haze! Oh, yeah. <laughs> that little part, that G, G to the A, I yeah. was like, God, that's tough. <laughs> that's three chords. Yeah, and that was, yeah, it's yeah. really moving. And not really in tune either. It's right. funny, I was listening to it yesterday. So we were going over lots of songs, me, me Phil, and John for G3. And uh, boy, when you when you, it's terrible when you turn on that part of yourself that's a trained musician to listen to things to make sure that you're, you're you actually are hearing all the parts that are really there. You're not just relying on your memory. Um, you start to pick things apart immediately. That's late. That's early. That's out of tune. Flat chart. You know, kind of spoils it in a way. But um, but yeah, that's it. that song is wonderfully wobbly. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. But yeah, the simplicity thing is is extremely important because starting with um, maybe um, strange, beautiful music. Uh, I remember going in there and talking with Jeff Campitelli, saying, "Hey, look, you know, I'm I, I'm on this thing. I'm I'm getting a little bit ornamental here and there. You know, I'm adding some progressive rock elements here and there you're comfortable with it you know and he's like yeah this will be fun you know so we had jams that were in seven and stuff that we we used to as a team kind of like avoid sometimes because we thought it was gratuitous or didn't really help you know with the story of the song uh, uh, unless we had a comfortable five which I, he, he knew i loved the fives you know the five four stuff so um but all coming all the way from there to finishing Shockwave Supernova and recording with Marco and Vinny, I felt like I think me and that style of making room for all this arrangement and ornamentation and stuff is it's, it's kind of served its purpose with me now. You know, I love it and I have it. And every time I go on tour, no matter who's in the band, they're going to have to deal with it. 
you know, yeah. the, the weird time signature and, and how some of the rhythm sections made it sound like butter and others really made you know that it was an odd time signature on purpose, you know. Right. And um, so, but I was thinking, well, the, I, you know, I, I just want to change. I want to somehow shed all, all, everything I possibly can to and realize what is it that's the most important thing to me, you know. And and it it came down to what an outside person like yourself said, which is that it became simpler. The, you know, fewer notes, fewer chord changes, you know what I mean? Um, uh, and, and as I put the invitation to, to Chad, uh, I think I said rock and soul, everything in 4-4, four, four, and, and <laughs> you know, nothing progressive, you know? And three weeks in L.A. <laughs> well, actually, it was... Oh. He did his job in seven days, and uh, Chad stuck. Ar- I mean, um, uh, Glenn stuck around for two more days, uh, and then we were back up here. So yeah, it was it was really fast, and it was it was two weeks after the tour, my tour had finished. So because uh, Chad suddenly had a different schedule, we had to respond to. So it, it was wonderfully charged because the fact that we were slightly rushed, but we were all excited. And, uh, and and we were in a good studio, and it sounded good. And, you know, it was all those good elements. Yeah, you did you know. down at, at Sunset Sound. The yeah. rum, rumors were flying. Satriani's in Sunset Sound with yeah. Glenn Hughes and Chad Smith. <laughs> what a beautiful room. It was really great. Just big enough, yeah. you know, so we're all, you know, about this far away from each other. And, and great sounding room. And I've been in a, quite a few rooms with Chad, and he can pretty much overpower any room he's in. But he sounded really beautifully balanced in that room that's and, awesome man he's a monster like his personality i actually i don't know if i ever told you this story but i auditioned for the red hot chili peppers back wow, when, really and like when they were trying to find they did a huge cattle call they ultimately ended up with dave navarro wow but i somehow got through and got a little call back and came back and got to play with the actual band wow and we did like two jams and chad was just all over the place his energy <laughs> is yeah. i really respect that He's like Mitch Mitchell mixed with like a really super funky, hard hitting like <laughs> funk player. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's almost like you think he, you know, uh, part of him. He's channeling drummers who were born in the '40s and learned how to play in the '50s because he has a firm grip on that swing, that style of swing. Um, that yeah. Bonham had, and yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. But then he's thoroughly modern you know what i mean he's 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 part of he's got that uh the 70s rock thing and uh and and uh, a full dose of uh, of hip-hop generation uh sensibility as well he's a very interesting blend but the enthusiasm the love of music is that's what it is and you know, the reason why i called him was because in towards the end of the the last run for me uh the surfing the shockwave tour we did two chicken foot gigs up in tahoe and it was the usual crazy chicken foot affair there were no rehearsals we just showed up and they filmed it and and they both shows were crazy chad and, smashes drums uh he did yeah, um so drummer personality in <laughs> the best way and it's funny every once in a while you know problems would happen you know sam would get hit with something or whatever on that particular night sam got really upset because he was hoping to bring those drums back to the studio <laughs> they were going to be his studio drums you know and uh but oh, they man. they got smashed right there so um but it added to the the emotion of the moment uh but i it, i remember thinking this is 
what I want more of, this thing where every beat you got to like follow what's happening with the drums because you don't know where it's going. It's a surprise. There's, you can never think that Chad's going to play a groove for four minutes and you won't have to pay attention. You can just listen to the feedback on your guitar or something like that. It's like, no, everybody at, at, a, at a foot gig, everyone has to be totally engaged with each other every second. Otherwise, they're going to get left behind, you know. And so yeah. it's thrilling, you know. And I thought, like, it would be great if, the, you know, the songs could reflect that we could you know and that that fell on me i had to write the right kind of songs that will allow chad to just freely associate you know with uh, excitement about well i love it yeah because i mean he's wild but it always serves the groove so yeah it doesn't distract you (laughs) yeah Let's let's see if we can uh, maybe jam one of these or uh, whatever you want let's to see do. If we can, uh, now, now I have to prove that that your songs are learnable. Oh, okay, which ones did you I, learn? I, no, I learned. Uh, that's a cool one. I learned, I learned smooth soul. Maybe warm up that or uh, okay. Uh, 
Chao. Another reason those melodies sound so good, in my opinion, 
And this goes back to, I think, my favorite quote about you that I've heard, and I still have yet to finish this awesome book that you have, oh, which is yes. full of quotes from other people in your life. But, you know, you were the first um, guest on this podcast. Thank That's you very right. much. Right this here. Is, yeah. Right here. And it's <laughs> been like, you know, there's already like 61 or 62 of them. That's Steve great. Vai was one of them, and he. I asked him what it was like learning from you, and he said the thing was even back when, when Joe was 16, and how old was he, 14 or whatever? I don't know. When 12. 12? 15 and 12 we he were, said, yeah. everything Joe played, he made sure it sounded good, whether it was a scale, even back then when we were kids, whether it was three notes or a scale or an exercise, you always made sure that it sounded good. <laughs> that's I nice mean, I think you. you've been doing that your <laughs> whole life, and I, that's when I teach, that's what I, one of the things I try to... I think that's one of the very best things I could pass on to a student. It's just like, whatever you're doing, even if you're just playing a major scale, try to make it sing. Yeah. It's hard to do. It's really hard to do. And, <laughs> and that's what you're doing with these songs, these melodies, with the spaces, finding the right amp, the right tone, yeah, the right mastering engineer that you've been working with forever and mixer. You just keep trying, you know? Yeah. You just... <laughs> you, wow. And you have to have tenacity uh, because um, it's it's... You know, it's a, the fun part is when you get thrown out in the room with the musicians and you play, you know. And uh, Mike Fraser and, and John Cunaberti have been really great uh, at giving me that freedom to just take off the solo artist, producer hat and just become, you know, guitar player that's hard to take care of. <laughs> yeah. You know, because we're better when we're just bouncing off the walls, right? And... Uh, and then you know, at some later date, you come back and you go, "Okay, I've got to organize all this stuff." But th by then, those guys that you're working with, uh, like in this case, Mike Fraser, they've they've captured all this great stuff and they show it to you, like you know, you did this that one day when Steve I and, and Brendan Small were in the studio. You played this wild stuff, probably because they were there, and you know, and so we should use that, you know, because it's got that mojo to it, you know. And these are things that I would forget because if we did eight takes, I, I wouldn't remember. And then right. the next day we did some other song, right? So you, you, there's a lot of that that goes on. And, but it, it does go back to the fact that you, the idea is no matter what you play, you've got to make it sound musical because it is the only point of what we're doing is, is to make music. And just to get off on that slight tangent about the thing about the lessons that you mentioned... Um, it's one of the hardest things for any of us to remember, but it's good for us if we're teaching to remind students not to practice scales as if they are a thing to achieve unto themselves. Because uh, that's, that's sort of a cryptic way of saying it. I usually tell people, no, you will never sell tickets to people who, who want to come see you practice. No one is going to buy a record of you doing chromatic, exercises right. you know for picking dexterity um you know may, maybe <laughs> if if they found hendrix practicing we would buy it but uh or i would buy it but uh in general uh uh we're supposed to provide music for people so everything we do has to be geared towards making everything we do sound like music so just it's it's a great way of saying you know, to yourself, why should I spend four hours doing this particular fingering of a scale when there's never an opportunity or a good time to use it in that form? I right. should be learning what the scale is about and 
and learn, you know, like major scale. That, that means I could, I could write a song like Purple Rain. Isn't that a great way of using the major scale? I think so. <laughs> you know, not just doing, yeah, I can do it change. in two octaves and three octaves off of every fret on the guitar and do it on yeah. my eighth string and my tenth string. It's just like, but who cares? You know, it's, it's got to be towards something. And if you're, and you bring that attitude into the studio. And uh, like I was mentioning with that song Invisible, when, when uh, Steve and Brendan were there, and I came up that morning with an idea to add an intro and an outro that wasn't on the demo. And so I just kind of sprung it at everybody, like, hey, let's try this. And we just did a, like three or four takes of just the intro and outros. When and you say that those two guys are talking about Steve Vai and Brennan Small? Yes, they were in the studio. They just visited. Yeah, so they're they, watching, so you're pulling. So it changed your energy. Yeah. While you're playing. It it happens. And, yeah. and because, you know, and it's a small studio. So, uh, you know, uh, Glenn, Chad and I are in the room playing and there are these two amazing musicians. They're like, hmm, what's <laughs> Joe doing today? I could do that. I could do that a lot better. <laughs> that's probably what they were saying to each other. Right. Absolutely not. But that's <laughs> definitely what you probably were thinking they were saying or not necessarily. But like, how, how do you deal with it? Like, I talked to Luca Thur about this a lot, too. Like, you know, when he just played in L.A., he had Eddie Van Halen. He had every guitar player <laughs> in the general Southern California area at the Greek Theater watching uh, him do his show. Yeah. Do you ever have those moments? I remember talking to Schofield once, and he was like, man, I was a little self-conscious last night because Robin Ford was sitting in that table right there. He was pointing at We're at Yoshi's. Oh. He's watching me the whole night. <laughs> you ever have those moments? Or I love that. I just, to me, that's like a, a reason to to play to play great stuff. That's just a reason to celebrate. Because if it to me, it's I look at it the opposite way, which is if if you, if Brian May or Steve I are standing at the side of the stage during your show, you should feel like you have the best possible ally uh, audience member ever in the world because they totally get what you're trying to do they totally will forgive you for anything right if you trip on your shoelace or your cord falls out of your guitar they've been there before they t they won't take it personally they'll laugh it off because they everything's happened to them they've had right. to play out of tune they've had to play in tune uh you know all warmed up not warmed up bad sound monitors break amp fizzles out you know they've been through it all so um Good point. It's you know what I mean. It's you should yeah. feel like you have uh, support. You got your crew there. It's really what you got. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now speaking of that room, real quick, isn't that the room where I mean, there's like two rooms at Sunset, I think, but one of them is famous for all the Van Halen records. That's when, that's the one we were in. That's B, yeah, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. I've been in like fair warning and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, that happened by accident. We we found out we were all going to actually we were going to go to Sand. We we tried to get into Skywalker again, but it was booked. And then we were going to go to Sam's, and Sam was set up for us. And then um, we had the schedule change, and very quickly phone calls were made, and two studios were available. One was uh, uh, Sunset Sound, and I knew that um, the Aristocrats had been there, so we asked Brian how, you know, how that went, and he said the room's great. We go to B. It sounds great. And besides, like you said, it's got all this history. So I'd never even walked into that building. So uh, I was like a tourist. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I got to mix a tune there once. Well, I played on a song that was mixed there. So I got to go in there and check it out and, and feel the vibe. And yeah, this is where Eddie's and Alex's Schlitz cans were like littering the floor <laughs> in that one photo. <laughs> wow. The little the little room where I stuck the heads, that was kind of, or the, the speaker bottoms, that was a bit rough. I mean... 
That yeah. was, uh, I, I, I don't know where northeast, I don't either. southwest is, but we were set up uh, lengthwise. So Chad was across from me and my little amp room was behind me. And, and that was, it sounded like stuff was combusting in there, but um, we, we weren't worried too much about it. And we always record DI at the same time anyway, just in case something great happens and we can reamp it later. Um, but we did get a couple of things that were that were really cool that you wouldn't think of. Like I think we got a, a rhythm guitar part for um, uh, for Righteous, and we got those crazy, you know, the well, this. All that stuff. See, this hasn't been adjusted yet. I got to work on that. Um, uh, for invisible, um, and uh, yeah, so there were good things that happened there, but um, mainly it was capturing the bass and the drums. That was the most important thing because we only had those guys for the week. So, man, job well done. Now you talk about certain scales, maybe not necessarily being useful. I mean, that's not what you said, but like they could sound like well, an exercise or something. But you've always been able to make that stuff sound beautiful. Like even on Cherry Blossom, these arpeggios, those minor arpeggios. Right, yeah. It almost sounds like an exercise, <laughs> but it's so beautiful. Can you, do you remember what those are? Yes, I do. <laughs> Can I play them is the question. <laughs> I mean, I know you play. Yeah. Done with a drop D. Yeah. That's just, yes, they're beautiful the way they come in there. I imagine maybe you'll have Mike play those in the background or maybe play them on keys or something. Well, I, so, what do I do there? Because I, mean, I, I finish, uh, I have to do this. Da, 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 da. I may join them second time around and right, right. that'll be tricky because there's there's some like high gain guitar with no band around you in that that's always very risky live because you're out there by yourself it's very noisy and you're not quite sure where the timing's going and um yeah we'll we'll come to grips with that one there those are you know that's a song where i thought wouldn't i imagine the sound and i i wrote it on the keyboard and then I thought the guitar should play that, and then I went, "Oh, that's, you know, playing this arpeggio. The intonation sucks up here. You know what I mean? And then it's noisy if you've got any sort of gain or stuff on there. So there you go, making things sound really good again. <laughs> so I just thought, well, I don't know. And then, you know, this this is a minor pentatonic scale but when you hear someone else play it you go that sounds really nice it's cascading and i imagine you know cherry blossoms dropping off the yeah. tree and blowing in the wind and so it, it it changes your attitude that it's just a simple minor pentatonic thing right but the the idea was when we were tracking that and we had the keyboards doing it uh, again, I think it was Eric who said, "Oh, you should really put some guitar on there." And I, and I of course, I had a million excuses. I tried to, <laughs> to get get out of the, the the hassle of doing it because I said, "But it's noisy, and the you know the the pizzicato and everything is so clear." And and they're just looking at me like, "Okay, you know, when is he going to be done with his excuses <laughs> and just play it?" You know. <laughs> so um, so I said, "Okay, but let's try it really clean." So we just got a clean sound, and and uh, 
I just played the arpeggios yeah. without thinking that it needed to have any kind of gain on it. And, and which was actually the right call because it allowed the drums to be more forceful. It didn't, we didn't rely on the tone of the guitar to be like, you know, the angry arpeggio. It, it was just there to support, to be part of the ensemble with the strings. And, um, and, and so, and, and again, you know, when you, when you put together the sounds on a guitar album, I always think that if, you, if, you know, the three sounds that are supportive allows this top sound to exist in a very unique way, whereas with other songs, you couldn't do it. And so, you know, having... This isn't probably the exact tone, but you know. I mean, it's kind of muffled, you know? And then up. You know, it only works because there's this dunk, dunk, jugga, jugga, dunk, dunk, you know? I love that tribal sounding drum loop. Where that got started, first of all, it's it's they're taiko drums, um, and um, I think I got a text from Brendan one day, and he and in the text was uh, something about uh, oh I'm going to get the company wrong. Is it Eight IO? Uh, some uh, software synth company. He was just saying how oh cool this for that because we're always talking about Crystal Planet production because we're working on this thing. Uh, Ned. Brendan and I, and um, anyway, so it was just a random text. You know, when you you know you get a couple of days, everyone's saying try this pedal, do this, do that. You know what I mean, kind of thing. And so I think I followed it, and I I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. They've got you know sounds from around the world, kind of thing. And I think I just bought it and then forgot about it. And then when I started producing this song, I was thinking I need something that reminds me of cherry blossoms in Japan and. And sure enough, there was that program, and I it did have taiko drums in there. So, but they were really strange. I mean, they were like comp- really authentic. So they were out of time. And there was a lot of yelling and screaming going on, and, and it was like whoa. So I just went in there and I grabbed a bunch of them. I recorded them, and then I created a loop based on truncating a bunch of them. And um, but I thought I'm not going to try to make it sound like it's real. So I let the thing. I kind of let it sort of dry up right at the end of the loop there. And I just put it in there thinking we would replace it at some point, you know. Um, but Chad came in and said, no, you have to leave those there. Let Just cool do sound. that and then let me come in, you know, with my own thing. And uh, so, yeah, it was a great day in the studio because everyone was really excited about the dynamic level of it. And then, of course, when the middle comes, it's the perfect excuse for him to go totally crazy because he's been laying out for so long, you know. Yeah, that's great. I guess that might be your second single or something. Yes, <laughs> which is super cool. Let let the record show that you were doing quote unquote. Well, I was doing yeah single because I've, nowadays I've heard the term focus track as well. Ooh, focus track. I think I've heard that from your great publicist Melissa, right? <laughs> who does so much? She works with so many great artists. And yeah. McLaughlin and I can't remember them all. Phil Collin. Yep, Jeff Beck. Who, yeah, she, she's she's great. Absolutely yeah, great. Yeah, she's amazing. Uh, and she educates me on what's happening in the outside world. Maybe we can talk about the the first <laughs> single, which is so it was actually energy. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm looking at the list behind you over there. Oh, yeah, so you're, I'm you're gazing over there. That was just yeah. the when I first 
But I mean, was that the first song that was released? The first, the, I remember seeing the video come out for Thunder High on the... No, um, what we did was Energy got released like at the end of September to radio. Oh, cool. Now, I don't know, was it the focus track or the single? What's radio? <laughs> What's no, radio? <laughs> um, that's Gary yeah. J from Landshark. He takes care of all that stuff for us. And um, he was one of the first to hear the album. So he was like, no, we got to go with this particular song first. And uh, yeah, so the Thunder, I think then... Uh, you know, my manager Mick and and John Luini from Chime Interactive, they all, and the and the label, the guys at Legacy, of course, we all got together and brainstormed, uh, you know, how to release the record. We knew that we had to hold it for a January release schedule, but we also know that uh, radio programming kind of freezes. You know, at Thanksgiving through Christmas, it's just nothing new happens. You know. Uh, unless you're like Beyonce and you just walk in with a brand right. new record <laughs> in a movie. Yep. Uh, so uh, they say, well, okay, what we're going to do is kind of unusual. We're going to start releasing little bits of tracks along the way until, you know, the record actually comes out and the tour commences. And I never argue with the professionals what on this What a concept, level. <laughs> man. A, a primarily instrumental guitar player with a whole record team and everything. And it's just... It's nutty what you've done with the guitar, man. It's nutty. Yeah, I you know I write the last him, artist in San Francisco. I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. I'm being making a cynical gentrification tech companies taking over San Francisco joke there. But oh, no, you right. are you yeah. are a true artist right here <laughs> in an incredible locale, incredible yeah. residence. That's yeah, pretty. Very and you've done all the guitar, and you got a record team and everything. It's just it's nutty. Yeah, they are really. I tell you what, they they prove the opposite of what, what you hear about complained all the time about the evil corporations and and uh, people pulling strings behind the artist and controlling everything. I read about that stuff and I go, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I said, the guys at Legacy and Sony have kept me going all these decades. And and, and the first label, Relativity, of course, was Cliff Culturi. I mean, they they nurtured me and Steve and just about every guitar player you can think of who can't sing, <laughs> and uh, although Steve can sing, he's, he's, he's can a good sing. singer, um, and uh, and and they're the ones that actually help th the most right at the very beginning. When I call up the guys in Legacy and and we go, hey, we want to do another record. This is my idea, you know, rock and soul, and and Chad and Gled and everything. They're like, great. What what do we what do you need? What can we do to help you get it done? You know, and they leave us alone, and then we get it that we need help. They help us out, and then, uh, I mean, just the putting the. I wish I had the album jacket to show you, but I, I I gave one to Mick yesterday. I just had the one, but working with Todd Galapo, and that's an expensive package, and so that has to be approved by the label, and then the label says, "How can we help you, Todd?" You know, the guy at, at Meat and Potatoes who does our artwork. Now, why is it an expensive package? I mean, oh, you know, foil and reflectiveness, and the you know. The, the amount of paper and product used just to put out a CD, which is not a really big seller these days. It's really streaming. So most people would scratch their heads like, huh, you're, you're making LPs, but that's what we do. We've got LPs, and, and, right. and this comes from the support of the label. And they'll do that. And then when I travel around the world, Sony Legacy people are everywhere, you know, uh, uh, helping out. So um, they've been really great, you know. And then these records would never get made without their support you know well can we try thunder oh yes now, now, see i've been sitting here i've got a 
your, your listeners can't see this, but there's a micropog and then there's a whammy. So here's the difference, right? So because got, obviously you don't have an open string. That's a that that's that. Right. That yeah. So e. it's it's uh, here's a. Yeah. Nice and meek sounding, a little bit of delay on there, right? So then here's the micropog. Yeah. Okay, and then here's this. I don't I don't have the tone better uh, plugged in right now. I think the battery's dead. So, um, but here's the big yeah. difference. You'd know this if you were playing it, which is the whammy pedal has a slight delay to it. Right, it's, pro right. it's in other words, it's processing, right? Yeah. Um, and then I ran the whammy into the tone bender, which also says, "Whoa, you know, I'm gonna lay back." You know, that's what it does with the distortion. You know, it's beautiful sounding distortion. And so when I was tracking it live, I remember Eric Codia, my editor, just his head went to the side, and I go, "I know that's exactly what he's hearing. He's seeing my fingers, but he's hearing something a little bit late. He's very sensitive to stuff like that." And because he's thinking like, well, how's that all going to fit together? Like, what's Chad listening to? Is he listening to the click or is he listening to Joe's slightly laid back, <laughs> you know, electronically laid back signal? So as I sit here and I rehearse for the tour, I'm thinking, well, I know the whammy pedal has the love, right? Because it's, it's having a hard time um, understanding what I'm playing. And then when it hits the amp which is on a gain channel, the gain channel's going, what the hell is that? Is that a bass or a guitar? You know, so it's kind of undulating, right? Yeah. So, um, and it's fun. The pog, however, is, the uh, sorry, the micropog is much faster at processing the low right. octave. And for some reason, the amp goes, I can get this, they're closer together. You know, there isn't yeah. a, a four milliseconds between original signal and the, the detune signal. So that's, that's kind of like great. what I'm, I'm, it almost sounds like you have more of the octave on the recording than what I just heard. I know you just started got the random pedals. Yeah, well, uh, that's because we can EQ it, you know. Uh, you, you can right. e EQ it. I think we were running through the JVM, which has less bite than the 6100, which is what I'm using right now. JVM is just the ultra, ultimate smooth tone. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I love that thing, but you got to turn that thing up really loud. I mean, I find that yeah. when it's up at about... 110 decibels it finally starts to go ah this is what i was meant to do you know <laughs> like most like an old marshal you know um uh, but played like at bedroom level it, you might be going like wow it's so soft but um it's we used it for on the um uh a red mode on the lead channel uh for for this part If I could switch channels, and you, you'd you'd see what I mean yeah. about the, I mean switch amps, you'd hear how how much fatter it is. It just kicks more low end, and it's it's got no. This this one has like a bit of Van Halen in it, and that has no Van Halen in it. That's that's right. the way I see, I see it in my mind sometimes. Like because you go back to the early uh, you know fair warning kind of a sound, and it's really bright. I mean, it's really bright, and it really works with the band and with the vocals. It's just really exciting and. Eddie just plays right into it like it's a tool, you know what I mean? Like he has right. total control of it. Um, and every once in a while, just for fun, I'll I'll entertain that super high-end crisp attack. But I I can't pull off, 
I mean, how would I do cherry blossoms with that? It just wouldn't work, right? And uh, so because I've got no David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar screaming, you know, and then I just come in for eight bars or something like that for a solo, I need to uh, create a sound that is a little bit easier on the ears because that's all people hear for the whole song. The intro, the rhythm, the melodies, the bridge, the chorus, and the, the solos and stuff. Um, and so for uh, that part... Uh so for that one... You play like a sitar player, which I, which I just love. <laughs> um, yeah, for that one, we went into... You know, the channel three and four are identical, and uh, which is a crazy thing to do, but... You could always just push the button in here and you get yeah. the same third channel that you had on the original stock JVM, right? Um, but anyway, I use the green channel, a green mode, which is like two tubes less, I think, maybe, than all the tubes running when you're in the red mode. Um, and then I used a, a, a BB uh, preamp, the red-orange looking little pedal, to, yep. to add a little attack to it. Exotic. And that sort of brought it up to kind of like this level, where the, the 6100 does have a lot of attack, but this has diode distortion. So it, it, it sort of uh, warms up in a different spot. It has, it, it's very interesting. Again, this amp really doesn't work unless it's loud. And, and then once it gets really you know past 100 dB, something else takes over. And there's this depth that it has in the low end that I think is really great. And it allows the high end to be a little raspy, maybe. So, wow. you know, we used the 6100 the, and probably the JVM the most, but then we had the, the Mezza Barbara, which is a really cool little lamp, and, um, or big, it was 100 water. I had the uh, KSR Arthos, which is really interesting sounding amp. Really worked for songs where you're in a certain key and you need forcefulness and thickness but you don't want ultimate sustain you want the notes to decay quick so you can phrase um but in the case of uh you know with the, the JVM and with the Tone Bender. Sweet. Well, we got to try to play it. I got to show you that your songs are learnable. Uh, okay. What, do you, what part that, do you want to learn? Let's do the whole song or some, however much of it you feel like doing. Oh, that's cool. One, two, three, four. Oh, 
Between hanging out with you and Phil Collin, who's also on this <laughs> podcast and was also going to be on, has been on G3, and yeah, I think you have a bunch more G3 dates coming up with him. Or? We are starting our G3 in January. Yeah, yeah. With, with, Phil, with Phil, yeah. He came to the G4. He was spectacular. Oh, such a cool cat. Yeah. Both of you guys just, you know, I always feel like embarrassed to be ignorant about how the Sustainiacs work. I don't know if he, he has his own similar system yeah right? is it a sustainer, sustainer or a sustainiac it's kind of yeah maybe jackson proprietary i don't know, I don't know. yeah but you know you know what i'm not ashamed that i don't really know how to use these things i just want one so bad can you just give me some tips like give for all of sure. us out there when we get our first sustainiac what, what <laughs> what's what do we look forward to and how do we live with this thing okay well the first thing is the sustainiac when it's not on is a beautiful sounding pickup you know all the guitars on the, on the new record have, are using that. Anytime you hear neck pickup, that's what it sounds like. That's you know? a, I was going to ask you that. I figured maybe you, just for the record, you would use a traditional neck pickup. But so all those beautiful neck tones are actually sustainiac yeah. pickups. Okay, yeah, now it's really, I'm completely sold. Yeah, the cool thing is that you can go in there and you can say, you know, louder, softer, less bright, more. You can adjust it from the inside until you get it right. Um, earlier today, I was telling you about how these are the new touring guitars. So... Stuff's just installed, but we haven't really tweaked it for the amp. So, for instance, if we go there, we would use the, uh, into the JVM, we might use the setting that we had before. If we go to an amp like the 6100 that's brighter, we might decide to dial back some of the brightness that is on the on the pickup itself. So right. that's really cool that we can do that. Because a traditional pickup, you just have to switch it out, right? Yeah. But here you, you can play with it. Anyway, you turn it on. The way that I've got it worked out, because I like as few knobs as possible. As I, I lift up my tone control, it engages. You can hear it already. This is not amplified, right? So yours just, would do the same thing. That's just your nine volt battery creating all that energy. Yeah. Right. And then I've got it. Uh, the way we 
like to run it is that we go forward here with the switch towards the neck of the guitar and that gives us our fundamental sound we go to the next switch and it moves the octave up and you'll see if it'll it may not be the right note for that let's see if we can get that happening here here we go so here it is I'll put it I'll go back that down see now that's just the fundamental yeah there's the octave and I switch it one more towards the back of the guitar and and I get another octave up there so, oh. it's like I would just never leave the house with <laughs> it's right. it's addictive you got to learn how to use it I mean one of the the cool things about that I notice is that if you're doing a if you're doing one of these like See the infinite sustain, yeah. but when I'm doing it, I, you can hear that. I'm too close to the amp right now. Um, they're right. talking to each other, the pickup and the, the tubes. Um, <laughs> I love it. Well, the problem that I used to have on stage was that when I got the guitar at a volume, on using the volume on the guitar at just the right level for the sustain, I'd run into feedback problems. Monitors or the stages would feedback at different times. It used to drive me crazy. I'd always be doing this, you know, right. <laughs> turning left, Avoid right it. quickly, <laughs> avoiding it, running to the other side of the stage, that kind of thing. And when this really started to work for me was I realized, well, besides the fact that I can sound like Robert Fripp or Steve I in a second, right? <laughs> uh, I was really keen on trying to figure out what I was going to do with it, you know, that was different from, from these guys. And, and, uh, and those weren't the only two. Like, I think um, Neil Sean is beautiful at using it and not ever letting you know that he's got it going. It's just right. gorgeous how he uses it, right? So, but I realized that I could run my volume control lower to avoid feedback problems, have it on fundamental setting, and it would give me that sustain that I needed, but still sounded like I was playing a sweet melody. You know what I mean? Right. And then, of course, when I wanted to do that big dramatic thing, um, you know, at the end of a song and point to somebody <laughs> in the audience, you know, forever, yeah. you could do that. You could go out and get a bite to eat, and I'd still be here. <laughs> doing that so but yeah so you um there's a the the song called head rush the solo has it on there fastest song on the record is has the long sustaining notes <laughs> yeah yeah um isn't that funny well the the tempo thing is really cool this this i know i digress here a little bit from the sustaining thing but when you get tempo up to a certain level and the band is busy right they're they're just their normal operating level is a high quantity of notes everybody's playing so if you try to just up your usual quantity of notes then it's just a big mess everybody's you can't really tell that everyone's that anybody's playing fast because it's everybody's playing fast right so but it's for me i always felt like once you get the band cooking like that and you sit on top you can actually go back halftime with your you know your melody or solo kind of a thing and it creates this sort of beautiful contrast between total kinetic frenzy of tempo and a sort of a detachment like you're flying above it. 
You know what I mean? Totally. And yeah. it's like this. It's like you're downhill skiing or snowboarding, and yet for some reason, why is everything so slow? You know, why am I aware of snowflakes drifting closely to the right. ground and every little thing? You're and and so uh, I, I love wish, that you get skiing, by the way. And you, <laughs> I, I wish I could still snowboard. I, I I gave that up ten years ago, but I loved it. Oh, I just oh. loved. it. I was totally addicted to it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so it you can. You can be uh, a little clever with it. Yeah, you can tell that. Um, if you run the volume controls full up, you're going to get complete squeal going, right? Right. And now if I go to the fundamental, I can run it full on. If I, if I back down. I honestly don't remember yeah. if I used the middle or all the way up there, but that particular solo was done here, DI monitoring Sansam, and I don't know where the volume control was at, but I do remember that we had all these solos to pick from, and we brought that one up and we went, oh, that one's interesting. It really had that spirit that I was talking about before where it seemed like it was just kind of in a, in a dream, you know? And then when the solo was done and we get back to... simple chords <laughs> oh, it sounds so good what's so what's your favorite bridge humbucker from demarzio or this is well uh, what is called a saturate how clever is that huh i, I remember those now of course yeah. um we came up with that a couple of clever, other really actually. cool names but um the saturate is an alnico 8 pickup that uh, steve blucher came up with and i was just looking for something that was a bit more than the uh what did we have the mojo which was more than the the other one that we had we more keep, is more more Joe. is more we just i keep asking for Everybody more talking about this less is more they are so wrong <laughs> i keep asking steve i want more so uh he was you know saying well you know i think i figured out this alnico 8 and no one else has figured it out so it is to me really broad and it's not like it doesn't scream like hipster vintage or uh you know 
all the volume you could ever want or any of that kind of stuff. It just, yeah. it just to me, it just allows me to pick out of it exactly what I need. Um, and it's just really broad sounding. I just really, I, it was so curious when I first plugged it in. I just thought that is strange. And I thought maybe it's because it's in the JS, but then we put it in a couple of other uh, non-JS guitars and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Totally different yeah. uh, era in, in pickup design. Um, but it's a, it's, you know, it's a passive pickup. Um, and I still think it's a medium to medium high output. Maybe, I don't know. I still think it's in the medium category, you know? Um, but this particular guitar, this was the prototype for the new Chrome. And I I realize now it's the frets aren't set up right. So we're, I'm buzzing out, buzzing out out a little bit there. There you go. So you can fix that in post, right? Yeah. There's a (laughs) debuzz. Debuzz. Fixes fret buzz. <laughs> you actually that solo you just used was it a Sansam plugin or yeah I, I like monitoring with that yeah but what did you how did you actually what what are we hearing on the record uh, that would be the JVM yes. so you reamped it no hold on a second hold on I take that back that's the sixty six Marshall no it was the seventy one Marshall Super Lead you know vintage uh, turned up yeah. all the way and it was it was mixed with the M zero the Metzabarbera M zero yeah. the M zero felt better. To me as i was performing it but we, we but it was a bit too modern sounding you know it was just really totally together and i wanted it to be um trashier sounding or something or right. more woody sounding i don't know some old marshall amps sounds like there's like wood in the circuits i don't know how to explain it there's just a body about. to it yeah you get a little you get a little nasty stuff like stuff flying out of the, the grill cloth kind of sound. Yep. <laughs> but as soon as we heard it, it was like, oh, no, that's it. So, yeah. yeah. And, and it, of course, it's a trio there for most of the song. So Mike wanted to figure out a way to get a, a stereo image without going digital stereo chorus or anything. So I think he, he imaged, it's mainly the Marshall and then the, the Mesa Barber is in there just sort of adding a little bit of fluidity to it. I think it was this part here. It was the... Um, I mean, when you play that, you know, you're you're just concerned about the physicality of it. But every time I would sit back and listen to it, even after like it felt great, I'd go, well, that just doesn't sound right. Like there was no depth to it. And I yeah. found that with, you know, you know, with all the modern amps, that part didn't really work. You know, the rest of the parts in the song were, were pretty standard. But I said, how come that one just, it starts to get very like electronic sounding. So, um we were using Cunaberti's reamp, so we would just we would have you know like 15 amps in the studio, and we would just keep changing heads. We'd run the signal back out into the That's different cool. head into the same speaker bottoms. At the and same we, studio, or this was at Sam's, and then we when we, we oh, you mean Sam's rehearsal pad right here, Sam Hagar. Yeah, where yeah. You, where you is your rehearsal pad? Yes, oh, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sam was nice enough to let us take over for a few weeks. Yeah, he's got actually a control room and everything. All right, okay. It's so a real it's studio. All coming back to me now. Yeah, yeah. It's a real studio, and. Um, um, yeah, so we, we would just reamp this stuff. And when we got to the 71 Super Lead, it was like, oh, my God, that's totally dirty. I mean, it just sounds really raspy, but it sounds woody. It sounds like all of a sudden you could hear the cabinet, not just the mic in front of the speaker, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and when that part came, suddenly it was like, whoa, there's like 
depth to it. You can hear all the funny things going on, you know. Little, I mean, and when you play through it, it doesn't make you feel very confident. Right. <laughs> you know, if you play through the Mezzo Barber or the JVM, it's like, I can do anything, you know. It gives you that feeling like it, the amp is just going to continue any note you play. It'll just let it last forever. Yeah. But on the Marshall, no, things die. They, yeah, that, it's that tone <laughs> that sounds the way that 50s Fender twin amp that we're sitting next to looks. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Tweed and scrappy. And exactly, yeah. I, it's funny, that amp, I haven't had success turning that up. Um, it's been great yeah. as a clean amp. But for, it looks like the sound we're talking about, doesn't it? Does, it does, yeah. <laughs> Re, you know, ripped up tweed and, yeah, dirty. and A million stories. Yeah. Yeah, that one's got the Jensen's into it, I, and I kind of like it over. I have another one, uh, same year, '59. Uh, that's got the that I put some um, Celestian Golds in. And it does sound a little bit better, louder if you're trying to get some sort of crazy yeah. crunch, you know. Um, but um, uh, the Jensen's are just a little bit more kind if you're doing clean picking, not so spiky, maybe. Man, I'm just I love all the detail. You spend so much time on, you know playing but you spend so much time i don't know if everyone realizes how much time you spend on the tone it's, it's crazy in your your whole life whether you know on it's stage crazy. or in the studio it's it's constant i mean it is what you're right now you're in a very cleaned up joe environment <laughs> usually there's too many amps and guitars and pedals and cables and it's like with the artwork there's like six paintings that i'm doing and it's just like a mess down here but um yeah i mean i'll tell you what was interesting in that whole quest, because poor Mike Manning has to drag just about everything to the studio. Uh, he's, how long has he been working for you? 30 years. <laughs> That's so wonderful, man. Yeah. Okay. Um, as a matter of fact, today he is picking up another 6100, bringing it to Chris Barnett for, for fixing. Chris, tell Chris what's up. Chris, you out there, what's up, dude? <laughs> he's a genius. I haven't seen him um, since I moved to L.A. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Eight years ago, but oh, he's okay. a great guy, man. Great amp tech. Yeah. Good musician as well. Yeah, killer player. Sorry, go ahead. Um, and uh, what else is he? Oh, yeah. So And and Mike's going to pick up another amp, uh, one of the KSRs, and bring him back here because I, I I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do for live. Uh, anyway, but um, what worked in the studio? So, um, you know, we had maybe out of the 15... Uh, old marshals and new marshals and and 5150s you know my original 5150 one of them's right behind the door there um i think we may have used that 66 jtm the 100 watt pa head that thing sounds beautiful um all of, all of these would go to chris first chris barnett would would make sure that they were not going to blow up and they sounded as good as they could you know we wound up with maybe four or five of the vintage heads that really did work for being dirty rock and roll guitar heads you know for soaring beautiful leads it was it was always the jvm you know right. or the ksr or the mezzabarba those and it's it's uh, no surprise because they're modern amps with engineers who've grown up learning from all this other stuff and they've gone now we know what guitar players need it's got to be reliable it's got to fit within the environment of the modern recording environment you know and they're quieter, you know. They don't blow up like this one did <laughs> earlier today for no reason at all. Um, that'll go back to Chris. But um, my 63 um, uh, Brown Deluxe amp once again came through sounding really great. Now, Bill Schneider worked on that one. When I bought that one 
on Reverb or eBay or something like that. That thing smelled like an East Coast basement where it came from. It was horrible, but it sounded <laughs> amazing. Um, Smooth Soul, the crunchy chords were the were the was the '63 uh, Deluxe. You wouldn't have noticed it, but that's what they were. It's you know. That kind of stuff, you know? And then it gets really clean for the... That's a different amp? And that would have been oh. that one and the Deluxe and with the uh, the Toneworks G4 rotary pedal so on the there. Deluxe and the twin amp. Yeah, they, it's very interesting, you know, they, because on that particular song, the melody guitar is a little bit... Uh, muted you know we didn't make it just full treble open up so you know once you start then it's like a domino effect it's like well who's poking through you know and so these these uh, twin amps can be they have such great transient response sometimes you don't want it and we we probably put like a um a compressor in front of it to try to manage it but depending on your part if you need to pick it hard you're just going to get transient response so the higher wattage works against you if you have a lower wattage amp, and, and then it'll it'll just sort of cringe a little bit and make it sound kind of warm and friendly. But yeah, so uh, that's 63, and, and that was Bill Schneider. I think Bill, over at uh, Broken Guitars, he worked on a bunch of my more modern Marshalls. We've got two mods, and I think they we use them. Yeah, he does some really interesting mods. I forget what he calls them. They, I thought maybe they were called Dexter mods, but I'm not sure. But he, um, yeah, Marshalls and Fenders, he's really great at. Um, and somehow he got the smell out of the 63. <laughs> that amp was so funky. Oh my God. I don't know how he did it. I just, uh, it really smelled bad. I think he came from a basement in like new hampshire yeah. or something probably took it to a mold specialist or something. <laughs> it's Same. and it smells great you know and it's important for amps to smell good so anyone who has an old fender knows that smell is like important <laughs> absolutely they say that's our most primal uh, sense is that right <laughs> i kind of think music and smell they say like of our main senses the smell is the one that's really connected to your most primal spot in your brain wow at least someone told me that i don't know if that's true but Music, arguably, too. The whole howling at the moon thing. Interesting. Mm. <laughs> together. Yeah. Speaking of primal, talk about the Sammy Hagar guy for a second. <laughs> um, now, you mentioned his studio. For, I yeah. got to thank you again, because after we did this two and a half year, almost two and a half years ago, you suggested, hey, Sam would be great. And he uh, was on the podcast for about three minutes. Oh, wow. But we, we spent most of it with uh, Vic Johnson, who's oh, just great. killer. Yeah. And we're hanging out at Sam's spot, your spot, Chicken Foot's spot. And it should be noted that that's also a really Sam's. It doubles as his Ferrari storage storage facility. It's <laughs> well, crazy. among other cars, yeah, he's yeah, got all so many other cars. cars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had just acquired a, a La Ferrari that day, which oh, is like a wow. one point four. I'm talking about the price tag here, yeah. folks. And uh, so mm. he was a little distracted. <laughs> Have you ever ridden? In, I mean, Vic was saying it, it almost, you know. Made him ill, like how crazy Sam drives, and and yeah. you are not the kind of guy who I think of as a wild rocker, heavy drinker, <laughs> or anything like that whatsoever. <laughs> but yet you spent your life with some of these rocker personalities. You yeah, interact with Sam. Well, if you get in the car with Sam, get get ready to white knuckle it. Yeah, the yeah. funny th I say the funniest thing about Sam is he's a good driver, obviously, but he has his own style of driving. The weirdest thing is that he sits very close to the steering wheel 
which is off-putting because, you know, when you get in like a Ferrari or something like that, you know, you want your yeah. arms extended. You expect to see what you've always seen. You know, these uh, these high power car race drivers always are in that position. And Sam gets in, he pulls the car up like he's driving. You know, you're eight years old, and he's taking you to the soccer game or something. And oh, uh, but then, of course, he steps on the pedal, and he just you know. So I think uh, years ago we were doing some little promo video for a chicken foot song and we had to drive together for a second down the street and that was it. <laughs> After I'd shot that part, I thought, okay, thanks, Sam. I'll walk from here. You're like, Sam, I can drive 55. <laughs> yes. Thank you. He's passed me on the way to his studio sometimes on 101. And just like, he looks at me, he screams, and then he, and you can hear his voice over <laughs> the car uh, on the freeway. That's how loud he sings. And then he, you know, he takes yeah, off, leaves you in the dust. So he's got a cannon. <laughs> he's so funny. But yeah. yeah, the studio has turned out to be such a great little hangout for the foot guys and everybody, you know. And, and, uh, yeah, it's I love so hanging cool. out with, with, uh, Vic there and going over all the gear. We're, we're both ho hopelessly addicted to finding the right Marshall head. And, he's got you know. a great thing going with the Marshall and the like uh, wet, dry, wet kind of thing going. Yeah. He's got a good tone happening. And it's a tough gig that he has now in the circle because they play this, like, I don't know how many decades worth of guitar right. sounds that he's got to somehow work in, you know. Um, that's a tough one. It's not like just doing your one thing, you know, your modern yeah, they're, thing. they're doing Zeppelin. They're doing Montrose. Yeah. It is, Van Halen. as you know, you know, we all grew up doing the cover bands and it's the hardest gig for a guitar player because you, how, you know, you want to reflect the correct sound for the song, yeah. but when you're playing songs that were done in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, it's like the gear requirement is just, it'll drive you nuts. And you know it when you play it, if you've got yeah. the wrong pedal yeah. or head for the song, it just kind of lets you down, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And it brings me on the subject too of like, all my favorite lead guitar players, and I'm including you in that bunch. Why, are, thank you. I mean it. And then uh, our killer rhythm players. I mean, everyone Thanks. asks you about your lead playing and all, everything, all the fancy stuff that catches your ears <laughs> immediately. Or, But where do you, I mean, first of all, props to Malcolm Young, who we just lost recently, yeah. and like the simplest player. I just saw a great video of Steve Ray Vaughn the other day, Rude Mood. I'd seen that. I'd seen uh. him perform when I was 13. You know, He is a rhythm guitar player who plays lead. Yeah. Well, I don't know what I'm asking here, but what are your thoughts on rhythm guitar and how to learn it and how it relates to playing lead? And or? Well, first of all, I don't think that there's a, there should be any rule to any of it. You know, There are plenty right. of players out there that are just so amazingly inspirational, but they're not known for either their lead playing or their rhythm playing, you know? Right. So on the, on the one hand, I'd say, okay, Malcolm, uh, you know, god of, of rhythm guitar, he could, obviously he could play other stuff. He just chose not to show us, right? So, but we can only clap for what he showed us, right? So, um, but, you know, look at someone like Jeff Beck. I mean, can you think of Jeff Beck rhythm t things? It's like, no, but you can't hold it against him. He's the god of the expressive jeff beck thing you know what i mean True. and so and none of them you you wouldn't think of saying anything to detract from their awesomeness because of the two obvious discrepancies one guy just hardly ever plays rhythm this guy hardly ever, yeah, ever plays a single note two perfect ends of the spectrum <laughs> and you nailed it so that's i always think about that and i go that means there's you can just do whatever you want it just doesn't really matter if you need a rhythm guitar 
call up Jude. He'll come and do it for you. <laughs> you can do all that slapping yeah. thing too. You can do whatever you want. So I, I don't, I, I wouldn't. Um, but there's something about pocket though, about having groove and like playing in these bands, like we were just talking about cover bands, where yeah. you learn to play, like you played in a whole mess of bands before you broke through as a solo yeah. artist. Yeah. Rhythm playing is something I love, which is what attracted me to Chickenfoot was that first time we played together and I found myself on stage just playing rhythm and it was like a for, for the first time in years it was like a world that had nothing to do with like you know what i'd surfing with the alien what i'd been working on you know in front of audiences around the world suddenly i was just doing this and just finding the perfect pocket with chad and mike and i thought oh this is great yeah, this is yeah. what I used to do in high school when I was in bands. It's That's what Malcolm loved, by the way. <laughs> I, I got to interview him, and he said there's nothing he'd rather do than stand in the back with his left leg against the drum riser and just feel the groove and lock in. And yeah. he said, you know, he'd watch Angus run by. He described him like like the 515, like the train just running across the whole stage. <laughs> there it goes. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's so. amazing is that the 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 physical experience of being the lead player is is one of of being somewhat detached in a way right the the melody you know whether you're listening to a jazz singer rock singer you know uh pop singer the the melody is supposed to is usually about some kind of freedom you're not the the vocalist is not caught up in the minutia of the rhythm section and the arrangement that they're doing right um they should be allowed to float on top and to be the ultimate expression of the meaning of the song, right? And what I found in working with the rhythm sections over the years that those rhythm sections that I would put together for different tours would give me different versions of that, where, you know, some would be pushing me in certain areas, others would make me feel super comfortable in other areas, and it would allow me to forget them so that I could play way in the pocket and not feel like I was late because that's what it is right right <laughs> this is you playing late <laughs> but so what's the difference is there's some sort of artistry to it but so there's got to be some love going on between the soloist the lead vocalist and the rhythm section now to to flip it around when I'm sitting there and I'm playing rhythm guitar with chicken foot I realize oh this is great this is what I never get to experience when I'm being Joe and I'm playing the melody to Flying in a Blue Dream. I, Flying in a Blue Dream, I've got to be detached and just know and be confident that the band is just going to be going dun, 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 dun behind me, you know, yeah. stream of consciousness. That allows me to play with the timing and and to to be expressive in a, in a ornamental way, right, um, as that song is. Uh, but when I'm playing and Sammy's singing, suddenly my job is like Mike and Chad, we yeah. have to be this freight train yeah. that does not alter, so Sammy can forget. So yeah. you know, and he can look at the yeah. audience and react to the people he's seeing in the audience and how he's feeling and 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 working the room. And he can't be busy going, you know. Oh, Chad's pushing it. Joe's dragging it. Mike's on top of it. You know, that we would ruin it for him. So it's an interesting yeah. uh, experience. If you love it and you connect with it, as as Malcolm did, obviously from from the quote yeah. uh, that you mentioned, then it is a, a a perfect world there to to be to be playing rhythm guitar. It is so so much fun. Yeah, to be I mean connected your records have you have a lot of rhythm guitar tracks, and you play with Mick Jagger, and yeah, <laughs> and like we, Greg Kinn was on the show, and oh, uh, great, 
he had great fond things to say about you, of course. And uh, he is kinda... great. Now, Greg's one of the. He is like one of the most amazing lead singer performer guys I ever worked with. Yeah. You know, I, I my only regret is that we didn't get to do you know arena shows because he would have he would have been great doing arenas and and um, and coliseums, but he was that good at just growing into the room and being yeah. and improvising had a huge voice great huge voice and he yep. just had, he was friendly and had a gift of gab and definitely <laughs> it's amazing very funny very funny guy and um you know we used to have so many question marks on those um set lists and he'd be he'd be he'd like go he'd be talking how's everybody doing all right man and and uh, you know what happened today? And you know, and he'd start playing, and we, yeah. we'd all be looking at each other like, "What's where's he going?" You know, and somebody <laughs> eventually, Steve or somebody in in the band would suddenly go, "I think he's going to play Hide Your Love Away." I think that's where he's going. We'd have to listen to the story, and all of a sudden he'd start doing it. But he would expect the band to know he's doing that Beatles <laughs> song, "Hide Your Love Away," and we'd have to be there for him. You know, oh, man. and then we get. Then we do a you know a great Ken song, and then it would happen again, and he just start playing. But it could be Hendrix, it could be the Beatles. It's great. You never know what he's going to do. Always smooth and natural. That's so important for the rock energy. I interviewed, a, and he recently passed away. Jeff Golub, yes, great guitar player, and he played with Billy Squire, yeah, and all this stuff back in the day. And yeah, he said that when he played with Rod Stewart, that was the best part. Is that Rod Stewart would make any big giant arena feel like a little club studio and they try spontaneous stuff you never knew what was going to happen and that made the show incredible every time is that amazing (laughs) yeah make it you know there was a little element of danger and you didn't know what was going to happen (laughs) you don't want to be too perfect i just think that's such a great gift why if you could capture that but it's great when you're just in the audience and it's being done to you i think that's great that's what makes those concerts so so memorable but um yeah uh greg's still got it (laughs) <laughs> he's got it can you reflect on your shockwave supernova tour now that you've finished how was that any cool bloopers happen anything hilarious <laughs> well well there's a movie that that captured the the end part you know oh, uh, yeah. beyond the supernova uh, it's st- all started with uh me convincing my son to come out and just film some background footage for what we thought was going to be you know a live concert dvd it was just like the thing that we knew was coming and then uh, the, he got such cool footage, and I remember thinking, this is so much cooler than just us running through half of the catalog songs and a couple of new ones, you know? Right. Even though that band, I mean, you know, Mark O'Brien and Mike, we just laughed the whole time. We just had a good time all the time. And uh, so there, were, there was no drama. It was just great shows, and everyone liked fooling around. And, and, um, and it was easy to cut a lot of that. But then after... I started talking about how I really didn't want to do what I was doing anymore. I wanted to change. And the focus that, that, that well, I would say that chrono- the, the chronology of it was very interesting because as we were beginning to think, we don't want to do one, and the label was saying, yeah, why bother doing a live DVD? Do you have? Do you want to do a new record? And I said I definitely want to do a record, and I want it to be totally different. But I don't know what it is. I got I got I just want to. No more alter ego shockwave supernova stuff. I just want to get away from. It. I don't know what it is. So meanwhile, Zizi's there, and he starts to capture this 
internal drama, you know. And the movie became that. That's what it became, was just because he's my son and he's not like a, a guy, a stranger we hired to come in where right. I was always like acting, you know, like the guitar player. Uh, every time the camera was on, it was it was easy. So, of course, I yeah. was just myself. It was you know? a level of trust. Yes. So you know this person. And right. You know he's going to be in deep shit if he lets the wrong <laughs> video out. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, the thing <laughs> is, is that you you can't lie, right? You're not going to lie to your son. You know, you're not yeah. going to suddenly become, you know, shockwave supernova, you know, because he just gives you that look, diffuses the situation, deflates the, <laughs> the ego immediately. Right. And uh, but you know he he'd been out on tour with us since he was four, so he'd seen us work behind and on stage, you know, endlessly. The family business he's grown up with, so that became very interesting because the process of him saying, you know, this is what's happening, Dad. You, I want you to tell me about this, and him being sort of like the filmmaker therapist, sort of bringing out what's really right. going on. And it was very revealing to myself to just suddenly go, I guess so. I mean, it's it's not like uh, the the world stopped, you know, like it was a, a yeah. tragedy, like I needed, uh, you know, um, medicine to get me through it and a doctor <laughs> or something. But we, we sort of ramped it up because it was, in fact, in my world, it was a big deal. I was thinking, like, I, I want to stop doing this kind of thing and I want to do that kind of thing and I just but it was happening while I was still doing the other thing that's the thing maybe people don't realize is you're still on tour you've been on tour for two years two and a half years but the last year or six months you're actually writing the next album your artistic nature is saying run away but every night you've got to go back and be your old self and I mean I I often tell people it's not a real job so I'm not really complaining it's not (laughs) difficult at all but in the world of uh you know uh a sensitive guitarist (laughs) um it it was it was a thing it was a conflict of of doing it because i'd be on stage playing and you know already part of my brain is saying don't play like that anymore that's like so like last year like and i don't want you playing like that on the new record that kind of thing the internal dialogue and then you know you're on the bus for 12 hours you're listening to your new demos or something and you're realizing like well who is this guy that i'm becoming and uh hey man it's all cyclical it was very it was very interesting the you're whole like process working out your whole new record you're playing the shockwave stuff but you're processing it either in the front of your mind or the back of your mind on stage in real time what you're going to do next yeah and the, and here's the weird part about it is that i did it to myself because i wrote this record shockwave supernova that's all about me confronting an alter ego and killing him at the very end. And the last song is Goodbye Supernova. I mean, how silly is that? So I kind of built into the whole tour yeah. that something was going to happen. There was something cathartic was going to happen because the narrative of the last record was, in fact, something's going to happen. It's it's catharsis time, you know, time to to get rid of part of you, you know what I mean? Yeah, Uh, lived it and (laughs) came to pass. So yeah, so so then now, so I kept asking myself the same question everybody said, so Joe, what's happening next? That's what they'd say, and that became like a joke title. And then I thought, I should just get rid of the question mark. And then everyone will know, this is what happens next. This is what I've been waiting for. I didn't even know it until the record was done. I often, I often, uh, joke with Steve I who sends really great blow by blow critiques of my records like if I send them a record ahead of time 
And last time I told him that I don't really know what I've what kind of a record I've made until I've read his critique. <laughs> That's so awesome. It's an interesting way of looking at it, but um, uh, but it's true though. And uh, yeah. So anyway, that that was that was a uh, an interesting little thing to have going on while the tour was ending and the record the new record was beginning to take shape and. That's great. So wait, it's not out yet? Or, no. So what's it going to be called? Does it have a title? Beyond the Supernova. You said that already. Yeah. <laughs> Got That's, it. That was my son's title. It's his movie. I mean, he. I That's told awesome. him, you just run with it. <laughs> well, man, I really appreciate you once again doing this. Uh, like I said, there's 60 or more previous episodes already. Wow. The first time I came here, came in this very room, it took me 17 minutes to set up the microphones. <laughs> I hope that you noticed today it only took 16 minutes. 16. Look at that. Look See, at that. progress. In Two another years 10 later, years. <laughs> we'll be down to 12 minutes. 12. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. You want to um, jam it out? Let's jam out, the, jam out to the opening credits. Jam out to the helicopter. What are we doing? I'm going to turn everything on. Helicopter.
So it was interesting when I first showed up and started setting up the mics. Joe picked up a guitar in his home studio and he was, you know, plugged in and it was super quiet. And I was like, hey man, Joe, of course you can play louder than that if you want. He's like, oh, well, you know, I haven't played yet today. And I thought those last two words, yet today, were interesting. I was like, Joe, do you play every single day, like play several hours every day? And he said, absolutely, he does. He says the only time he does not play is if he's got like, you know, 12 hours of travel or something. And man, it's just not a surprise to me that Joe is that dedicated. I've always wished that I could be that dedicated but I'm also dedicated to journalism and such and bringing you these shows, which cut into my practicing time. Let me tell you what, but it's worth it. Gain so much inspiration, especially fun to play with some of these players face to face. Got a great interview coming up with Steve Lukather. That'll be a couple podcasts from now. Great players. And then you know what? At the end of the interview with Joe Satriani, he showed me his art studio. You walk out the door of his home studio and there's kind of like a recreation room and on one end of this big room, he's got his easels and his oil paints and everything else and he does all those cool paintings. I know you've seen some of that artwork on his picks and especially on those awesome guitar straps. I'll put some of the, the artwork up straight from his easel on the No Guitar Safe Facebook page and on my Twitter, which is Jude underscore gold. You can also see me on Instagram, same thing, Jude underscore gold. And thank you guys so much for listening, and thanks again to Diderio. They've been so great to me, so thanks again to Diderio and Diderio.com for sponsoring this episode. Really appreciate it. What a great company. Thanks again to Zoom as well for the recorder that I used to record this interview. And of course, thanks to GuitarPlayer.com and Guitar Player Magazine celebrating its 50th year in print this year. My name is Jude Gold. And as Joe Satriani said famously now, back on episode one of this podcast, 62 episodes ago, keep it alive to you, 95. Whoa. Oh, it's safe.